граждане России. Дорогие друзья. Where are you guys in relation to what's going on? The sounding of shelling, of bombing and stuff we can hear in the distance. Praise the Lord. Every morning we wake up and thank the Lord that we're alive, that we have food and water, electricity and the internet still working. So there's still some places you can go to find supplies. Well, I'm just like stocking up as much as I can on whatever we can get so that just in case, you know, people need something or coming to the church. The audio you're hearing is from a Zoom call between John MacArthur and two missionary families serving in Ukraine. The call happened on March 3rd, 2022, exactly one week after Russia invaded the country where these families have, for three decades, trained Ukrainian pastors. What in particular could we pray for you? Pastor John, we were able to get a generator that we had bought just before the war started, but the warehouse was closed. So that's a praise that we got it yesterday. So the prayer request would be to get gas for the generator. We also have uh, a special needs person here. And so that along with some children, I'm not sure, 10 children, 15 children are unbelievers. Three of them are neighbors that we've met on the day of the bombing and said, you can find shelter in our church. We're praying for uh, those unsaved people to be saved, including our three neighbors. So again, you know, you're you're able to minister in ways that you wouldn't have necessarily planned. And I know you don't know how this all wraps up or ends because nobody really does. And you know, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? We're so impressed with Ukrainians, I can't even tell you. So we just need to pray for the Lord to use you in the hearts and lives of these people who don't know him. And in the stress of all of this, maybe they open to the gospel. That's what we're praying for. There couldn't be any better people than you guys there. The Lord knew that. No, it's one of those when you're weak, he's strong things. It's not us, for sure. It's a privilege, as you know, Pastor John, to, to be here and serve our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's, it's a privilege. This, we'll just trust the Lord to save many souls in the middle of, of this kind of stress. John MacArthur's love for these missionaries is obvious. They are his friends. He is their pastor. Their relationship goes back more than 30 years. In the late 80s, these two couples met in Southern California, and both husbands attended the Master's Seminary. Not long after they moved to Ukraine, John MacArthur paid them a visit, stayed in their homes, and watched communism crumble in that country. My first trip, which was to Kiev, which is right now as I'm speaking to you, being bombed, and um, I've been all through that city many, many times. Many of the most wonderful pastors' conferences I've ever been a part of in my entire life uh, were in Kiev, the central church in Kiev. I was there. I was in Kiev when the Soviet Union really collapsed. And I was there on, on a day when they went through the main square. And you've seen pictures of the main square with that tower on the media. That main square had statues of Lenin everywhere. But when the breakup came, I was there when they built scaffolds around the statues of Lenin and took sledgehammers and smashed Lenin to the ground. I watched them knock down statue after statue of Lenin um, when I was there. That was euphoric freedom. Not long after Russia invaded Ukraine earlier this year, an interview with John from that 1991 trip resurfaced on YouTube. Well, I think the people in the Soviet Union uh, know what it's like to live without God. That's been clearly reinforced for them because communism eliminated God totally and the world knows now what they got. And so their conclusion is something like this. If you don't have God, this is what you get. So let's take a look at God and see what, what the difference is. So everybody wants to talk about God. Everybody wants to talk about what it means to believe in God and they want to know about the Bible because they have no standard, they have no moral standard. Today I talked to a, a Ukrainian television crew that are making a documentary on sin and redemption, believe it or not, and they say we want to give 10 minutes to every major sin and then we want to talk about redemption. Can you tell us 
about redemption? And I said, yes, I, I think I can tell you about redemption. And uh, they said, how does one have faith in God? And what is the gospel? And uh, I explained the gospel. And they said, well, how do you believe? How do you, how do you have Christ for your own? Uh, everyone is asking this. Uh, it's really an incredible thing. That trip changed John MacArthur. And it changed how Grace Community Church and the Master's Seminary go about missions. Over the past 30 years, John's influence on world missions is best seen in the Slavic world, in Russia, Ukraine, and throughout the former Soviet Union. And as we tell the remarkable story of MacArthur and the Russians, we are going to find out what effective, church-building, soul-saving missions looks like. We're going to see how the ministry of one person entrusted with the gospel can spark a flame that carries the gospel to places it's never been. This is an episode for every preacher and every Christian who wants to see the Great Commission fulfilled and longs to be where God is working and understand how God is working throughout the world. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. And this is season two of the podcast, The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. Joining John on that Zoom call was the executive pastor at Grace Community Church. Yeah, last week I was reading about Martin Luther Jones preaching during the bombing of London, and I immediately thought of you. And that's exactly what you're doing, you know, 80 years later. Perhaps you picked up on his Russian accent. You're having that same exact moment, standing up for the truth, and hopefully God will save your neighbors. His name is Mark Zakevich, and the path which led him to that phone call starts in 1989, right before those missionaries first went to Ukraine and John's ministry became interconnected with the Slavic-speaking world. So the story goes back to our parents when they were both in ministry in the Soviet Union, which was at that point consisting of 15 different republics. We lived in Latvia, in Riga, and uh, because of my parents' involvement in ministry, our house was regularly under surveillance by the KGB. And so even before my parents had kids, um, their, the normal Christian experience was to meet in forests for church services. They didn't know the location until the night before. So nobody could actually betray the location uh, to the KGB. They've had experiences of being betrayed. Uh, and many, many Christian leaders were arrested because of somebody um, betraying the location. Um, so because of that, they, um, uh, you know, the norm was persecution and kind of surveillance. By the time we're born as kids and growing up, that's still part of our experience. There's five kids in our family. Uh, my sister Elizabeth is the oldest. She's uh, just about a year and a half older than me, than myself, then Joe, and then Philip and Anya. Uh, so there's five of us. My dad was an associate pastor in Latvia, and my mom speaking English. She, before she became a Christian, she went to college and she majored in English with the desire to work for the embassy in London. Um, and so because she became a Christian after college, she was able to finish her degree, whereas most Christians were not. My aunt was kicked out of college. My uncle was kicked out of PhD pro, PhD program because he became a Christian in the middle of it. So even within our extended family, people were uh, expelled from school for becoming Christians. Uh, I remember a time when our house was raided by the KGB and they arrested my parents at the end of a nine-hour search, took away bags filled with Bibles and Christian books and various other Christian literature. On Sunday, we would go to normal church service into a building. Our church was renting a building from a Lutheran church, a Latvian Lutheran church. And I remember growing up in that church, I also remember a man coming up to me on Sunday and asking me, can you point out all the pastors 
in your church. And so that's what the KGB would do as a way to trick kids to identify the leaders in order to later arrest them. That's right, the KGB. The USSR. If you're one of our millennial or Gen Z listeners, you probably learned a little about those terms in your high school history textbook, but you never had to dive under your desk and pretend that thin piece of wood was going to protect you from a nuclear bomb. First, you'll have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks something like this. There is a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. If you are not ready and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. It is such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town. But if you duck and cover, you will be much safer. You know how bad sunburn can feel. The atomic bomb flash could burn you worse than a terrible sunburn. The KJB stands for Committee for State Security. It was the Russian secret police, the main security agency for the Soviet Union. The USSR stands for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Fifteen countries were a part of it, including Russia, Ukraine, and smaller countries like Armenia, Georgia, Uzbekistan, and Latvia. And from the end of World War II until the last month of 1991, the USSR was engaged in a cold war with the United States. It was East versus West, communism versus democracy, nuclear superpower against nuclear superpower. Russia and the rest of the USSR were officially atheist countries. Christianity was not allowed to grow, and the government went to great lengths to try to stamp out the faith that was already there. So generally speaking, all religions were banned, were persecuted. Judaism, Orthodox churches, Evangelical churches. Uh, there were really almost no cults, you could say, because all that was illegal. However, the start of that opposition from the government towards any religion was through the process of registration. So as a church, if you registered, then they could control you and regulate you. So some even evangelical churches did that, and that allowed them to operate and function under certain regulations. For example, you couldn't bring anybody under 18 to church in order to kind of kill Christianity with one generation. Um, you couldn't evangelize. And so certain limitations were put on registered churches. So we were actually part of the underground, not registered church. Which, you know, see so if you understand the distinction, registered versus unregistered, as we just talked about, it meant that they did not follow any of the rules. They evangelized, they brought kids to church, that's why they had to meet in forests and so on, because they felt that it was unbiblical to follow any of those regulations placed upon the government. Set by a Soviet atheist government, right? A church submitting to an atheist government and the unregistered church which we were a part of was saying, absolutely not, we're not going to submit to an atheist government. That other Russian voice, that's Joe Zakevich. Mark's younger brother. The audio you're hearing is from an interview I did not long ago with both men in the MacArthur Center at the Master's Seminary. So in 1989, in September, September 30th, 1989, is when our family actually left Riga. The Zakevich family intended to immigrate to Australia, but God's providence would send them to the other side of the world. I. Uh, remember our parents telling us when they came back when they found out that we were rejected they came back and they were thinking what are we gonna do now where are we gonna go now what is gonna be the next step because what are we gonna stay in Austria for the rest of our lives are we gonna go somewhere else so there was a major step of an unknown what was going to happen and this was an, a tremendously stressful period of time and at that point, I remember that they began to talk to people and to submit applications to America, to Canada, and a few other places. But that was a major point where we had no idea where we would end up. 
three months after Australia rejected the Zakevich family's application, the United States said yes. The whole family got on a plane, flew to New York, and then landed in their new home, Los Angeles, on April 9th, 1990. My first memory is landing in Los Angeles and driving from LAX to Montebello, our first stop where we're going to live with another family, a Russian immigrant family. We're going to be, I think, 15 to 20 people in two bedroom and a two-bedroom apartment. Driving, being in the car, and just watching all the cars, and just seeing the city lights, and just seeing the downtown, passing downtown in the 10th freeway. I remember as a 10-year-old just being mesmerized and thinking, what in the world is this? It's so cool. That day, April 9th, really explains part of my identity because my name is Yosef. And the question is, why is somebody named Yosef in America? Well, when we came here and we arrived in America, I guess our mom was uh, giving the names of the children at the point of entry. And she didn't know that Joseph was the equivalent of Yosef. And so she just spelled out the name the way that we would say it in Russian. And ever since that day, my name has been Yosef, I-O-S-I-F. But as we spent years in America, my name kept being uh, damaged the way that it was pronounced. Um, and so when I turned 30, I added a middle name, formally, Joseph, uh, so that I could be legally and, uh, and uh, officially and properly called Joe. And so that's, that's the history behind why I'm called Yosef, Joseph Zakovich. Not long after the Zakeviches arrived in Los Angeles, another Russian expat directed them to Grace Community Church. That decision has affected every part of their lives over the last 33 years. During that same tumultuous period, the Berlin Wall fell in November of 1989 and the USSR began to crumble. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, the Mao must vec, the wall must go. Two years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. Communist countries became democratic. Religion became legal again. And as places like Russia and Ukraine opened to the world, two things happened. First, the rest of the world saw what the Zakevich family had seen for generations. Christianity may have been illegal, but it was not dead. Far from it. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Church of God had been growing. I believe that in whatever place in society a person finds himself, he can be a Christian, and he can be a good Christian. I think of Russia. As some people think that uh, it would be impossible to be a Christian in Russia. Do you know that the Christian church in Russia is growing by leaps and bounds? I told you that within a matter of weeks and months at the most, we will be broadcasting in to Russia. This is an excerpt from a 1975 sermon titled Christians and Social Revolution. In the middle of the Cold War, when the Christian faith was banned from East Germany to the east coast of Russia, John said this. The messages that we give you here are, are now being translated into Russian, First and Second Peter to be broadcast into Russia, and the estimation of the listeners that are that are hearing the word that is going in there is between 14 and 20 million people who are listening to an all-Christian radio station with a, I don't know, a half a million watts beaming in there that is so massive that the Russian government can't afford to stop it or block it. It's outside the country. And they can't afford the equipment to jam it, apparently. God may have something to do with it. But the point is, there are people hearing the word. And, I, and they were saying, you know, we need to get tapes and we'll translate them into Russia and we'll get the tapes into Russia. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? Oh, all we have to do is take one tape in. The Christians have duplicating uh, places where they reproduce all the tapes and pass them all over everywhere. 
The government may have something to do with the organized church, but it can't do anything to put out the life of God. But God is planning in the hearts of people. And the folks told me that at any given time when the word of God is being preached, they estimate somewhere around 14 million people are listening to the word of God in Russia. That conversation that I was having with the congregation about that was probably the, the entry point. Uh, and I was getting information from people in Russia coming at me. As you said, that was in the, in the early 70s. Uh, I was aware of the growing church, but in those days it was an underground church. Uh, and um, the the more persecution that was laid on uh, Christians in Russia, the stronger that church became because persecution drives out hypocrites. I mean, why would you pretend to be something that you get persecuted for? The reality is is all that's left. When persecution comes, it purifies the church. Well, they used to say there was an iron curtain, but there was no roof. This is Eric Mock. He's the vice president of ministry operations at the Slavic Gospel Association. Since 1934, this organization has supported gospel ministry in the Russian language. During the Cold War, the SGA moved millions of Bibles and Christian books through the Iron Curtain and broadcast the gospel throughout Eastern Europe and Russia. From Quito, Ecuador, Monte Carlo, France, they would broadcast the Bible at dictation speed. So you can find families today that still have Bibles a couple feet thick where they would listen to the Bible at dictation speed and they would write down word for word those words. They were so concerned about someone taking their Bible that they would pass out pages of the Bible to others so that if someone was taken and they lose part of the Bible, you know, they'd at least not lose all of it. Through the courage of underground churches like the one the Zakevich family was part of and the industry of organizations like the Slavic Gospel Association, the Russian church survived communism. But when the Iron Curtain fell, Western versions of Christianity came rushing in and immediately introduced a new threat. I, I learned that the Berlin Wall was coming down from the president of the Baptists of the Soviet Union. This is Bob Provost, Eric Mock's boss for many years. He served as president of the Slavic Gospel Association from 1993 to 2017. Since the Iron Curtain fell, few men have done more to help strengthen the church in Ukraine and Russia. And he was very upset about it. And the Baptist leaders were all upset about it. They didn't want the Berlin Wall done. He said, because if the Berlin Wall comes down, it'll open the door for a flood of false teachers who will destroy our churches. See, we didn't understand. We, we, we heard about churches being persecuted, but we never considered that because of the communist domination, it protected the churches from false teachers. They, they had never been exposed to a false teacher ever. Uh, they, they weren't allowed to write books. There were no books. There were no false books about the Bible. Okay, there were no false teachers on radio or TV because they weren't allowed to be there. And so the, the Lord had used the communists really to put a cover over the church. With their newfound access to the West, the church in Russia was rightly concerned that false teaching would infect their congregations. Faced with this threat, Bob asked a close friend for help. And they're telling me how concerned they are that freedom is coming and they're going to destroy you know, their churches. So I came back and took John to lunch my first day back. And I, I, I said, I don't even feel like going back to my desk. I said, I've just met the finest Christians I've ever met, and they're going to be threatened tremendously now, uh, and they need your help. I arranged a pastor's conference over there and brought Don, John to teach. During that first conference, John saw the threat of false teaching up close. One of the early conferences in Kiev, uh, my translator was Sergei Omelchenko, amazing young guy who actually has translated my commentaries into Russian through the years. Just a dear friend. But I was early, it was one of the early trips and there was an American guy there 
who said he represented some American mission and he was in the church service. And so the Russians are very gracious. There's usually three sermons in every service. There's a like a 10 minute one, a 15 minute one, and then the main one. Um, so they asked this guy if he would come and give a testimony. He's an American and give a testimony. And so he, he came up to the microphone and this is, this is, you're, you're in communist Ukraine, just it's, it's still communist. They're still socialists. And he tells the story of how many wives he's had and how he's been divorced, but the Lord has always given him another wife and that he owned 10 companies and he had a large house in Dallas and he's going on with all this materialistic nonsense. And I'm just, I'm sitting on the platform thinking, this is absolutely horrible. You know, and I want you to know that uh, I trusted the Lord and, you know, uh, he gave me a, a bigger house and my company grew. And these are these are communists. They don't own anything. And so after about 15 minutes of this, I had a headache. And Sergey sat down after translating. And I said, Sergey, that was terrible. He said, John, they didn't hear a word of it. I said, what? He said, I, I just talked about Jesus. With so much materialistic health and wealth preaching flooding in, the Russian people were eager to hear John MacArthur's expository teaching. Dr. Bob Provost, who is the one who uh, God used to bring me into ministry with SGA 20 years ago, uh, he sat down with the leaders and they, they actually asked him, who do we trust, who do we not trust? And that was early on. And, and one of the individuals, of course, that Bob most communicated as a trusted source was John MacArthur. To this day, the leading theological influence in the Russian-speaking world is Dr. John MacArthur. And they loved him. And he loved them. And he came back saying if he could speak Russian, he'd move there. Ten, ten conferences MacArthur had. Uh, we translated the study Bible and did five print runs over the years. And I don't know how many commentaries we translated and other books as well, MacArthur books, 370,000 copies of MacArthur books have been distributed to the Russian-speaking world. The safety of the persecution kept them cohesive and it kept bad doctrine out because there was no, there was no access even for cults, I mean, or limited access. But when they opened everything up, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Error was going to come flooding in from the West. Missionaries were going to come flooding in from the West. Uh, some of them for evangelistic reasons and many of them for financial reasons. Um, and there are some amazing stories about when I was over there many times running into camera crews who were shooting video of Russia to go back to the United States and raise money who really weren't doing anything in Russia. So the, he knew all kinds of things were going to happen and um, there would be a lot of error. So that's that was where it started. We need you to come and help build a fence around the church so that it can be protected from false doctrine. John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, expository preaching, and sound doctrine have been building that fence for the past 30 years. My first exposure to the church in the former Soviet Union was a trip I took in 1990. This is Mark Tatlock. He's the president of the Master's Academy International, a missions agency that's headquartered in the Master's Seminary building on the campus of Grace Community Church. When he was in Russia, a strategy for countering this false teaching started to develop. It didn't come from Mark or even John, or any American Christians that visited the former Soviet Union. The idea of starting training centers in the former Soviet Union was not an idea that we had here at Grace Church or the Master's Seminary. It was an idea that emerged uh, from the leaders of the Baptist Union in those countries who recognized that with freedoms, there was gonna be a significant um, incoming amount of false teaching. And because they had not had the freedom to train their pastors uh, during this period of time, there were no seminaries, there were no formal schools or training approaches to their pastors, but they knew what had to be done is the leaders of the church had to be equipped 
to, yes, rightly divide the word, but make sure that they could uh, protect their churches from false teaching and make sure their people were biblically sound and biblically mature so they had the discernment uh, when they heard things that were not consistent with the truth. So uh, it was in those early days, around 1990 to 1992, that discussions were being had among uh, unions of the, uh, the leaders of the Baptist Union, excuse me, um, among leaders of the Baptist Union who were looking for those they could trust. And what emerged immediately was a focus on John MacArthur. They had been exposed to the book, uh, The Charismatics. And having read the book, Charismatics, they realized this was the person they could trust to help their pastors. And in that conversation with John and other leaders like Bob Provost and so, so forth, uh, the invitation was presented to send graduates of the Master Seminary to come and help them develop a training ministry for their pastors. TMAI's first training center was launched in Ukraine. At the beginning of this episode, you heard the leaders of that training center, which is still going strong all these decades later. Specifically, the invitation to come train pastors in Ukraine, that was the genesis of what's now the Master's Academy International. Uh, there was no organization, there was no TMAI. It was just an invitation to TMS graduates to come and train their pastors. Once that school was established, then that began to draw other uh, church leaders' attentions from around the world. So eventually, school in uh, South Africa was birthed, the school in India was birthed, and, and other places, and then that became the model. And so um, today, while we have 18 member schools of TMAI, it was really what happened in Ukraine that set that course for us. Fast forward to today, and there are dozens of TMAI schools around the world. Along with the training centers Mark mentioned, TMAI is partnering with local church leaders to train the next generation of pastors in places like Honduras, Mexico, Spain, the Philippines, Italy, the Czech Republic, Japan, and many others. There are more than 2,000 students currently enrolled at TMAI training centers around the world, and thousands of well-trained pastors have graduated from these schools and are leading flocks in communities all across the globe. It's a profound and long-lasting mission success story. The real focus of TMAI is to train national pastors. Uh, any of our missionaries who go around the world to start a training center when there's an invitation have as their aim to work themselves out of a job. So our focus from day one is to partner with national church leaders to strengthen and support their churches. Our missionaries who go in serve in their churches under their leadership. And then we look to identify the key national men who are going to be best suited to become the trainers of the next generation. That means uh, when the time comes, and it has come in a number of places where American missionaries can't maintain a visa because of political issues or, or whatever might be the case, there's a school training pastors that's being led by national pastors and leaders and it's not relied upon us to sustain that work. And we're really thankful of 18 schools today, I believe 10 of them are led by nationals completely. This model that we're describing, pastors training local pastors, is the most effective way to strengthen the global church. MacArthur, Grace Church, and TMAI have seen this model work again and again in any language, in every culture. In God's providence, this reframing of world missions, this focusing on training church leaders, can be traced back to MacArthur's influence throughout the Slavic-speaking world. Now, Yakutia is a region inside Far East Russia that is the size of India, but with only one million people. We were there graduating. This is the first, a graduate class of first generation of believers all given John MacArthur study Bibles, all trained during the Antioch Initiative that was founded by Dr. Rob, Robert Provost. Um, and we are training them for the first time in God's Word 
these guys grew up in paganism. I call it the Lucky Charms faith. faith. You know, they, they worshiped the sun, moon, stars, and green clovers, and they had never heard how to teach and preach the Bible. And in fact, they invited SGA to come. And they said, we have all kinds of disagreements on what we should understand about God's word. We are fighting constantly. Will you come and teach us the word of God? And I remember a, a gentleman who's now at Nova Sabir Seminary studying to get his, uh, his uh, MDiv. He came to me and he said, I can't explain to you what I was preaching before. In fact, I don't know what I was preaching before. But after training in hermeneutics and homiletics, he says, I now know I can go verse by verse and preach the word of God to my people. He said, I I praise God for learning this. And it all comes back to that historic relationship uh, between between Bob and John. This long-term relationship between Slavic Gospel and John MacArthur and Grace Community Church uh, is born incredible fruit. I used to say, if I could speak Russian, I would go there because the need was so profound. The hunger was so great. When I would go to a church to speak, we always used to say there, you can't see the carpet. You can't see the carpet in a, in a Russian church because there's no space because they're sitting and standing and jammed to the walls. And then the windows are open even in the winter and they're standing outside um, and it was interesting to watch if you, there's a crowd rotation pattern. You have people on the outside and it's cold. So there's just kind of a movement that's going on as people get up and go outside for 15 minutes and let somebody take their seat and they kind of roll back and forth. Um, just a tremendous appetite for the word of God. Yeah, I think what binds Pastor John to the Russian community, and I would just broaden it to a Slavic community, in America and uh, around the world is his commitment to the Word of God. And when he came back from his first trip, what I've heard him say is he found a church in a foreign country that was as committed to the authority of Scripture as he was. The reason that over a hundred Russian pastors come to Shepherd's Conference every year and uh, the reason he's gone to multiple cities to preach in Russian churches and to gather the Russian pastors together is because he understands that there's a the element of authority the authority of scripture is what binds us together well dr macarthur's influence worldwide stems from his high view of scripture his life and ministry have helped countless pastors stay true to god's word trusting only in the holy spirit uh, through the proclamation of the world word uh, to impact and change hearts and lives. By example, he continues to teach pastors worldwide that that to be effective in communication, you 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 don't need to tell story, interesting stories. Simply to preach God's word and allow God's spirit uh, to change hearts and lives in the process. Today, there are Russian theologians evangelical pastors, and ministry leaders all around the world, men who believe in the authority and sufficiency of God's Word and exposit its truth one verse at a time. There was no theological training for probably 80 years under the Soviet regime. And now the Master Seminary brought in structured, solid doctrine in the form of training over a period of many years and they've allowed they've they've been able to exit the foreign field because they've fulfilled their responsibility to pass on the truth from one you know national group of faithful men to another group John MacArthur has strengthened the Slavic world by showing them the centrality of scripture the need for serious doctrine and expository preaching he sent men overseas including those missionaries in Ukraine, to strengthen the church by training its future leaders. And in return, the Slavic-speaking world has greatly enriched John MacArthur. 30 years after arriving in Los Angeles, the Zakevich family is still part of Grace Community Church. And the two men you heard from today, Joe and Mark, 
are friends and co-laborers of MacArthur. After both men graduated from UCLA, they attended the Master's Seminary. From there, God took Joe to Hebrew University in Israel, and then a little school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. With two degrees from Harvard, including a PhD, he returned to TMS and is a member of our Old Testament faculty. I was in Israel for two years and then I was on the East Coast for five years, so it was a total of seven years that I was away. And really what I missed the most was the teaching, the special teaching that Grace Church offers, that it has. I went to really good churches in Israel and in Boston, great churches where the preaching was great. And I love those pastors and they shepherded me and they, uh, they are my pastors. But coming back to Grace Community Church and being away from Grace Community Church, you really understand that Grace Community Church is a special place. And Pastor John's role in my life was something that shaped me, shaped the way that I think, shaped the way that I viewed the Bible as an authority and that the role of preaching that, uh, that the church is supposed to have in bringing the Word of God to the people that was something that was very um, prominent at Grace Community Church. As for Mark, well today, everybody works for Mark. John MacArthur even jokes that Mark is his boss. As the executive pastor at Grace Community Church and the head of the New Testament department at the Master Seminary, Mark is one of the busiest people I know. He's a friend, a co-laborer in the church, and in the work of training men for pastoral ministry. Basically, everything we had in those first two years, we got because somebody at Grace Church was sacrificially giving it to us. Whether it's clothes or toys or musical instruments, a piano, um, beds and mattresses and everything, everything that we had, somebody at Grace Church gave it to us in 1990. And I think what's most precious to me is 23 years later, I had an opportunity to preach at Grace Church, and I mentioned that as a thank you, my first opportunity to thank Grace Church. And a family came up to me and told me we were one of those families that gave you guys stuff. So those are precious memories because that shows you that Christianity transcends languages and cultures and countries. And when you see somebody in need, you respond, as we see happen in the New Testament so many times. Not long ago, one of those missionaries in Ukraine was able to say a similar thank you in person to the congregation at Grace Church. As the Ukraine army heroically defended their capital, the bombing died down, at least for a moment, and Bruce Alvord and his wife were able to get on a plane and come to California to watch their daughter graduate from college. So I've always been close to Bruce, and he's uh, there's a sweetness about him, there's an integrity in him. Um, he's a very faithful, faithful guy. And I knew through the years that he was accumulating influence because he taught for so many years in Irpine, you know, with Greg White and with Brian Kinzel. All three of them went together. And, and so they had produced hundreds and hundreds of these Russian pastors and Ukrainian pastors. And uh, on Sunday, I, I said to him, most of the faithful pastors in the Soviet, the former Soviet Union and in Ukraine have been touched by your life and these other guys. That's 30 years is a long time. I thought he wasn't going to come home because he contacted me and he said, would you be willing to go to my daughter's graduation so somebody is there to, to celebrate her graduation from, a, from college, nursing school, I think, in Southern California? I said, of course I'll go. But I think they found a way to get out, to be there for her graduation. Here's Bruce during his brief visit to California before he headed back into the war zone, speaking to the congregation at Grace Church. Main goal of these few minutes of talking is that you would see the greatness of our God. First thing I wanna say is thank you to every one of you who prayed for us, who sent us emails when we were down in the underground parking lot and we were hearing bombing sounds and sometimes rattling of gunfights uh, and we really didn't think that we would make it to the next day especially the first 12 days of the war and just being able to stand here is my thanks to God and to your prayers and his grace that he decided we would glorify 
him more by being alive before you today than to have died for him. Second thing I wanted to share with you is the wonder of the church. Uh, Sometimes during those sirens and bombing, Amy and I would make a quick trip up to our apartment that isn't more than just three blocks from our church where we were huddled down there. And during those little trips, you wouldn't believe, well, maybe you would, the fear that could fill your heart when you would hear the sirens going off, uh, when you would hear the bombing sounds and thinking the next one could be you. And then you wouldn't believe the relative calm that we would feel when we would return to the church. And what a picture that is to me of the safety and the wonder of the body of Christ. I just wanted you to know that as you send us, as you pray for us, as you hear about TMAI, and that's the name for all of our seminaries, God is doing a work. And you usually don't hear about it. But I want to give you one example. One of our students who graduated a number of years ago and is now back as a student again, getting another degree. And when the Russians overtook his city called Demer, they came into his church and a whole unit started to search his church building. And the unit commander came up to him with his rifle, with his gun, said, you just stay right here. Now, most of us, it's like, what does that mean? I'm absolutely silent. I'll do absolutely nothing. But when you're full of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, you know that your life is not worth as much as him hearing the gospel. As you sent us, we had a part in his life and he witnessed the true gospel to this commander you know what that soldier said to him? Thank you. You send us, and this is what God is doing in the students. And not only in the ones that we're hearing about, all across the globe. Praise the Lord for that. We're thankful for that. What defines salvation more than anything else is Jesus is Lord and I'm his slave. Right? Jesus is Lord and I'm his slave. And my master says, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We didn't have to find ways to motivate people to go to the mission field um, because they're motivated by an understanding of their relationship to their Lord and their love for the Lord. Currently, we are training pastors, I saw it today, in 80 countries. That's from the Master Seminary guys, Bond Out of Grace Church, we're in 80 countries. We're training currently, as I speak to you, probably in excess of 2,000 men as I speak, and thousands of alumni over, over these years. And we're looking at a potential over the next five years of maybe 30 more training centers. And what's driving that is not some whip you know, where we're trying to motivate people to do it. What's driving it is students who are saying, we want to go. We haven't created an American culture in which we're trying to motivate missions. We've created a biblical culture which draws people who want to fulfill the Great Commission from every country and every continent of the world. They come here because there is no American culture at the Master Seminary. There's only a biblical culture. It's exactly nothing from the American culture. They don't have to take his culture out of it to understand it. He doesn't teach his culture. He teaches only God's Word. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' great commission is a call to make disciples. Of course, that happens in the local church, and that's where men and women are baptized. That's where God's people are taught to follow all that Christ has commanded. So as we go into the world, we must be building churches wherever there are men and women made in God's image. John MacArthur knows that the best way to do that is to train the leaders of the church to send fully equipped men overseas so they can fully equip local pastors. John has seen that model work all over the world in the training centers that have been established over the past 30 years in countries like Spain, 
Honduras, Mexico, India, South Africa, and of course, Ukraine and Russia. And so we are to be about making disciples of all nations, all peoples, all ethnic groups, all tribes, all races. But the idea of making a disciple is a beautiful, beautiful term. The word mathetuo, the verb that is used here, and car carries the idea of a believer and a learner. I suppose we could say it is a believing learner or a learning believer. Make believing learners of all nations. Make learning believers. It is not simply one who believes or you would have had another word. It is not simply one who learns or you would have had another word. It is a believing learner. One who places faith in Christ and who follows in a life of learning. As Jesus put it in John 8, 31, the one who continues in my word is the, is the mathetes alethos, the real disciple, the genuine disciple, as opposed to the false one. So the mission of the church in the world can singly be defined as making believing learners or learning believers out of all nations. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. In our fourth episode, we're going to answer the question so many of you have been asking. Where did all these Calvinists come from? I don't know if you've noticed, but they're everywhere. Join us as we explore the origins of the young, restless reform movement, John MacArthur's influence on the movement, and some of his enduring concerns. I think you'll find it to be an episode worth five points of your attention. The Entrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Special thanks to Big Papa, Cody Signore, as well as the Zakevich brothers, Eric Mock, and Mark Tatlock. If you'd like to know more about the work going on through the Masters Academy International or support the good work that's happening there, go to tmai.org. To learn more about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, Go to tms.edu, ATD, out. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change.